Michael, we have officially arrived at our favorite time of year. It's the holiday season here in New York City, which means we will be spending a disproportionate amount of time shopping and socializing. And on the shopping front, for the very special people in your lives, do not delay. Take a look at the latest jewelry collections from David Yermit. This quintessential New York brand was founded by husband and wife duo David and Sybil, a sculptor and painter. Over 40 years later, the David Yerman brand is widely recognized as a symbol of relaxed American luxury jewelry. The Yermans work alongside their son, Evan Yerman, to continue to create collections with the finest craftsmanship and exquisite artistry. Enjoy all of the collections at davidyerman.com. Happy Saturday. It's December 3rd, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are two of your airmail correspondents just trying to make sense of the world. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here. I mean, you're in London. I'm in New York City. Wills and Kate are in Boston. I don't know. And and Harry and Meghan are dropping things on Netflix today for trailers for their show. But so it's a lot of people moving around right now. Michael, why did you want to make this documentary? When I saw this podcast, I had only one thought, SNL spoof. Like, this needs to be spoofed on SNL, and it needs to happen this Saturday. It not only needs to be spoofed, and I hope, I, I pray that they do, but also it was so weird because just last night, I watched the episode of The Crown where Diana gives her interview to Martin Bashir, and you see, like, it's like, once again, Megan channeling channeling diana there's just so much theatricality about this that i absolutely love it and what brilliant like i don't know if there's so i don't even know what the, mike i can't honestly i'm speechless over this and in fact i think you need to come over to london and we should, should watch it together because that's what friends are for whatever happens on with harry and megan what happens on the crown all i can tell you is on this show this week we've got a great one we've got some wonderful guests we've got pico Iyer, one of my favorite writers who will be joining us to talk about a favorite writer of many of you out there john le carré and what pico has learned about him after reading a new book about his private letters then the always witty julie wiener will tell us about a great idea for the perfect gift that money can't buy and speaking of money Michael Gross has the big scoop on how supermodel Kate Moss is turning the attention she's garnered from her many scandals into big bucks. Ashley, where would you like to begin today? Truly something for everyone, Michael. I have to say we have to begin with Pico Iyer because he's one of my favorite writers ever. In fact, I think I just recommended Autumn Light on this podcast not all that long ago. Pico is a writer at large for Airmail, hashtag we are blessed. He's also an incredible essayist and novelist who's known for his travel writing in particular. He is the author of The Art of Stillness, Adventures in Going Nowhere, Autumn Light, Season of Fire and Farewells, A Beginner's Guide to Japan, another wonderful one, and an upcoming book he's going to tell us even more about. Here to talk about the newly published letters of John Le Carre is Pico Iyer. First of all, Pico, it seems from your essay like you are somewhat of a fan of John le Carre. Tell us about where your interest in him began. I've been following him, as so many have, for 35 years. And I think it's because I grew up in England and in the heart of establishment England, without entirely being of that establishment myself, I've always felt he's the best chronicler of post-war England we have because he could really see it from both sides now. On the one hand, he was educated at Sherbourne, one of the best schools, and Oxford, and taught at Eton and joined the Foreign Office. On the other hand, he was the son of a con man. And he's the rare person 
in this society with a terrible class divide who could see it from the top, from the bottom and everywhere in between. So I remember many years ago, 30 years ago, I was going to write a book on England and I thought the only two people I wanted to talk with would be Kazuo Ishiguro and John le Carre because they were the only ones who I felt could see every aspect of England with an outsider's clarity. We have a new collection of letters that you have written about in this week's issue of Aramail that cast a new light on this celebrated author several years after his death. Tell us a little bit about his son who put these together and what his impetus was in creating this body of work. I think his impetus might have been preemptive. In other words, he knew that Le Carre's mistress was about to bring out a book, as she just did, and that everyone would be coming out of the shadows with their own Le Carre letters or accounts. So a couple of years ago, he went through all... all the Le Carre archives and collected this. And one of the beauties of this book is the son, Tim, his third son, wrote a long introduction. And he sounds as supple <laughs> and elusive as his father and wise to all his father's tricks. In other words, he says that his father was hard to pin down, easy to annoy, desperate to please. He explains how Le Carre was abandoned by his mother when he was five years old and was in the hands of his criminal father. And so all his life, he could never really trust anybody and perhaps couldn't even trust himself. And his son writes very clearly about all that and also writes that he's keeping out from the 600-page volume, most of the letters from Le Carre's mistresses. So who knows, they may trickle out even further as they've done already, which Airmail has chronicled. And one of the extraordinary things about this book, true to a Le Carre thriller, is the month in which this son, Tim, completed the book, he died suddenly at the age of 60 of a heart attack. And so the book is actually prefaced by his brothers, noting he put in all this work and then expired. Everything around Le Carre has this larger than life quality. What were some of the letters that struck you the most in this collection? All the letters are tremendously charming. I mean, Le Carre was a born performer and actor. One of the things that surprised me was that he would write back to many absolute strangers. A 10-year-old wrote to him, how will I become a spy? And the carrier in his very busy life took time out to respond to the 10-year-old. He carried on an extended correspondence with an American doctor whom he never met, but he really shared all his political passions with. And it's fascinating to read his long letters to Alec Guinness, for example, persuading Guinness to act as Smiley, his letters to Graham Greene. But what's almost more interesting to those letters that to people that you can't really place. For example, there's an academic from UCLA, I think, who wrote to him and suddenly he started sending her the sauciest, <laughs> most provocative letters and who knows what exactly went on between them and the letters quickly terminated. But the great thing about Le Carre is he leaves many more mysteries than he answers. And at the end of this book, you feel that you've encountered the most engaging, urbane person you could ever meet and you don't have a clue who he is. And you think maybe he doesn't have a clue who he is either. People often talked of him as a great Cold War novelist. But I think what gave these books added intensity was the Cold War inside himself, the Berlin Wall within, that half of him was this classic establishment Englishman, and the other half was always rebelling against it and really associating himself with Germans and romantics and everything he wasn't getting in England. And it's that constant tension between the con man in him and the idealist in him that he can never resolve, but gives a real urgency and energy to the books, more to the books than to the letters, maybe. So beautifully said. And you also note in your story this week, one of his books was entitled Secret Pilgrim. And here was a man who, as you say, longed to believe 
in something. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about, I come away from reading about it and I wonder, even in these letters, can you believe anything he writes in these letters? Are there just layers in these letters? It's just performing different characters as Smiley would have him do. I really think that's perfectly said. I mean, he was famous at the dinner party or dinner table for being able to do every voice in the world. And one really wondered what his voice was. And I think you put your finger on it precisely, that book, The Secret Pilgrim, even the title suggests that growing up in this atmosphere of distrust, he was always longing for some absolute, something he could give his heart to entirely. And I don't think he ever found it. And just as you say, the more eloquent he is in the letters, the more one doesn't know what exactly he's saying. For example, there are a few passionate love letters here. And the more fluent he is in the passion, the more one wonders how real it could be. Out of nowhere, suddenly there's a long love letter to his wife, 15 years after (laughs) they married. Uh, Who writes that kind of letter to a wife 15 years into a marriage and why? And what would the wife make of it? Presumably, he's asking for forgiveness of a kind, but he just presents it as a testament of thanks. So I think just as you suggest, what's fascinating with the letters is everything he's not saying and everything he's holding back. I mean, he's tremendously eloquent on politics. And I always felt if I wanted to know what was going on in the world, he's the person I would most trust because he was more intelligent than most journalists and he did much more reporting than most intellectuals. So what's really going on in Russia or Germany, he would be the guy to talk about. And many of the letters have his wonderful impressions of the world and of the world leaders. But psychologically and emotionally, as you say, one doesn't know how to grab him. And there are poignant moments. For example, a few years ago, he authorized a biographer to tell the story of his life. And then he took against the biographer halfway through and wrote his own version of his life after the biography came out, as if to trump that biographer. But in the letters, he says, well, that biographer could tell truths that I never could. So he realized that part of him was his father and could never escape the father who was always spinning these brilliant schemes and fictions, all of which were fake. One of the things that's also so interesting about him is that he could play perfectly the English gentleman in his maroon Rolls Royce, going to the Connaughts, the life of every party, the, the ultimate embassy man entirely because he was performing that and he wasn't entirely that. I was always struck that in his brief biographies at the end of his books, he would notice he would always register that he was educated at Bern and Oxford, which almost speaks for that double affiliation. There he was in the heart of Oxford being recruited by MI5 and MI6. But there he also was (laughs) across the channel looking at Oxford from a different angle. I love the moment just on the school you cite in the story, I'd never heard that. As you say, one of his housemasters at boarding school looked at him when he was 16 and said, what about him, Pico? <laughs> and said, this boy is either going to become Archbishop of Canterbury or a first-rate criminal. <laughs> and as you said, with the secret pilgrim, I mean, a part of him was each of those. And the, the housemaster said that when out of nowhere, Le Carre at the age of 16 decided to leave his very good school in England and go off to Switzerland. And so that's why I describe him as an escape artist. He was always slipping out of everybody's grasp, out of every category, out of his own grasp, I think. Pico, everyone has a favorite Lucario novel. What's yours? The Little Drummer Girl. In fact, I was rereading it last year. And I think because the Middle Eastern situation is so complicated and so mirrored between the Israelis and the Palestinians, it was made for Lucario, maybe even more than the Cold War. He would say his great novel and 
was the perfect spy, which is the one closest to the bone and most akin to what we're discussing, because it was really about his growing up with the criminal father and his attempt to escape that. So that's probably his most significant novel. But for somebody who's never read Le Carre, I would say read The Little Drummer Girl, because this palpitating thriller, but you can also sense the very slippery emotional landscape behind it. Before you go, Pico, speaking of books, you have a new one on the way, which is called The the Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise is coming out next month, yes? Exactly so, thank you, yes. And actually, now I think of it, it's about a lot of Le Carre-ish locations because it's looking for paradise in war zones. So it begins in Iran and North Korea and Belfast and then goes on to Kashmir and Sri Lanka and Jerusalem and lots of other places where I spend time. And I think it's spending time in all those places that really has made me respect Le Carre more and more because he takes no shortcuts and he really knows the world from within. Well, Pico, thank you so much, not only for your insightful analysis of one of our favorite novelists, but also for your fabulous books, which have enriched our lives in so many ways. <laughs> Thanks so much, Ashley. And thank you, Michael. And safe travels to you, Pico. Take care. Thank you for making time. Thanks again. Thank you, of course. Bye-bye. Well, Michael, all I want for Christmas is to listen to Pico Iyer all day long. Talk about a guy who should have a podcast of his own, intent. I mean, talk about like the sound of his voice, the sentences, the intelligence, the kindness, the charm. It's all there. We were looking at each other on the camera. I could see the look in both eyes like, I could listen to this for eight hours. This would be unbelievable. I think I had tears in my eyes because like if it's possible, I love, love, love Pico on the page so much. I think I actually like him more in person or rather in video conference. He's such a charming man. He's so delightful. He's on the list of my dream dinner party guests. If I could have anyone in the world living or dead over for dinner, Pico would be at the top of the list. Consider that an invitation, Pico, the next time you're in London. I think now you have an in. So there you go. Hooray. Okay, Michael, now that we've gone a little bit back in time, tis the holiday season. I know you've already done all of your shopping because that's the kind of person you are. But for those who have not, Julie Wiener has a great idea. Julie Wiener is here. She is a fantastic television writer and a veteran of Graydon Carter's Vanity Fair. And she's here to talk all about the world's best baby gift, but it applies to others in your life as well. Welcome, Julie. So, Julie, welcome to the program. So nice to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so this week you've got, I think, one of the best stories. Everyone's looking for holiday gifts this time of year, but you've got a gift that's good for any time of the year, which is basically that, you, as you say, money can't buy the perfect gift. <laughs> Tell us about your genius idea. So my perfect gift, which is not a holiday gift, but a gift that is applicable every day because babies are being born every day, is for a newborn, when you receive that email with the child's first name, middle name, last name, pictures, height, weight, go to Gmail, type in first name, middle name, last name at gmail.com, set up a password, give your friend's baby the gift of Gmail. Parents, I've done this mm, six or eight times. No parent has thought to do it themselves. They're very overwhelmed from what I understand. Early infanthood, infancy can be overwhelming. Babies still need a lot of handholding when they're a few hours old, I've been told. So they will be very grateful. And the child, when it is sentient, when kids start talking at 9, 10, whenever they talk, the child will thank you as well. I think the real genius of your story is, I think maybe as you note about a Gmail address is something that lasts forever, right? Absolutely. Babies outgrow any 
clothes that you get them that are on a registry within a matter of months. I mean, the tags on baby clothes, it's three to six months. Those are the units of measurement and a Gmail address or something, I think actually very profound and very cool about the idea of being in this inbox that will eventually be a font of love letters and job applications and <laughs> airmail subscriptions and just the beginnings of this person's life. And you're kind of right there. And eventually that child will hopefully use that gift really forever, maybe even to send you a thank you. So I, I do think it is kind of as close to eternity as you can get. You're also making the diabolical part of me think, you know how people are become squatters on names, right? Certainly in terms of web addresses. And I'm wondering if one could become a squatter on a famous person's child's name so that in 20 years that person is trying to get control of it and maybe get little baby Elon Musk's little payout from them. Oh, that's a really good idea. It's a gift for friends, but it's blackmail for enemies. But I can find out the name of your child and squat there until we exchange an agreed upon sum. I love the diabolical usage. Well, maybe there doesn't even have to be a celebrity couple or a baby yet. I mean, maybe the even longer con is thinking about celebrities who might get together what their babies might be named and registering Gmail's 30 years in the future. So I don't even... <laughs> what is Emily Ratajkowski and Pete Davidson's baby going to be named? And let's get that Gmail now. And Julie, now that you've added yourself as an excellent gift giver and a highly creative one at that, A, what's the best gift you've ever received? And B, what are you getting the non-babies in your life this holiday season? Oh, good question. What is the best gift that I have ever received? The best gift I've ever received might be... A giant pink snail that my husband and I saw in Paris about 10 years ago. And then five years ago, it materialized in my living room. It is a like six foot tall pink snail. It's hollow inside. The gift that I'm giving, the airmail hat, I think I or anyone else would be absolutely stoked to get that hat. It's on my wish list for sure. My husband is listening now. <laughs> what a fabulous segue. Don't forget, listeners, we have a fabulous shop on Airmail. It's called Air Supply. All of your gift giving needs handled. <laughs> Thanks again, Julie. Have a great week and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you guys so much. Take care, Julie. Bye-bye. Bye. Let's take a shopping break with our friends at David Yerman. In the American Luxury Houses holiday campaign, the Yerman family invites you to experience the magic of New York City by stepping into the Carlisle Hotel, an Upper East Side landmark. Nestled inside is Bellman's Bar, a famed piano bar beloved by celebrities and locals alike. The elegant ambiance and hand-painted murals made it the perfect setting to showcase David Yerman's sparkling holiday collections. The latest collections are modeled by brand ambassadors Scarlett Johansson and Henry Golding, and there are many beautiful holiday gift ideas. Enjoy all of the collections at davidyearman.com. You know, I like the way Julie thinks. It's very strategic, and it's thinking far ahead. It seems like a perfect segue into our next story and our next guest, Michael Gross, right? I don't really know how you segue from baby name gifts to Kate Moss, but if anyone can do it, Michael, it's you. Go for it. Well, Michael Gross has a terrific story in the issue this week about how Kate Moss, who was once a baby model, basically started when she was 14, discovered when she was 14, is now turning the attention she's garnered from her scandals and the children of her friends who shared them into cash 
And Michael's here to tell us how she's doing it and what it involves. Michael Gross is a veteran journalist. He is the New York Times bestselling author of several books, including Model, The Ugly Business of Beautiful Women and 740 Park, which is all about your building in New York, Michael. Just kidding. One day. That's what I want for Christmas. <laughs> Welcome, Michael Gross. Okay, Michael Gross, we are here to talk about one of the most culturally important figures of our time, Kate Moss. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Okay, Kate Moss has made headlines for the past 20 years, perhaps the past 30. And we heard from her again, I think it was one or two weeks ago, when she made a presentation at the WSJ Magazine Awards here in New York City. First of all, tell us exactly what that was like. Well, I wasn't there, but I, of course, read the tabloid coverage, just as many people did. And it sounds as if Kate was, what do they call it, tired and emotional. And she slurred her speech a little bit, and yet, nonetheless, was kind of charming while doing that. What was interesting about this is that this is what made headlines around the world, but... It turns out that there's a lot more going on in the world of Kate Moss. She actually has a rather successful modeling agency, which you've written about this week. Tell us a little bit about the Kate Moss agency. And A few years back, I think it was 2016, Kate left her longtime agency, which was called Storm in London. Storm had actually discovered her. The owner of Storm was a woman named Sarah Dukas, who discovered Kate standing on line at JFK trying to handle seats on a flight home to London. And they managed to all get on the plane, Kate, her father, and Sarah Dukas. And as soon as the fasten seatbelt sign went off, Sarah went over and recruited the 14-year-old Kate to be a model. And she signed with the agency the next day, cut to 27 years later, my sources say that Kate most likely just didn't want to pay commissions anymore and was tired of not being in charge of her own life. And like any number of models before her, she decided to open her own agency. It started very small. It mostly had the children of friends of hers. She was part of something called the Primrose Hill set in London in the 90s. And a bunch of her buddies had 14, 15, 16-year-old kids, and she made the models. The biggest star of the agency outside of Kate herself is her daughter, Lila. So it's a little tiny boutique agency. It punches above Kate's weight because of Kate. She is a figure of fascination, and she's really much beloved in the modeling industry. Do we have any sense of her involvement? Kate is certainly the face of it and star model. And she claims, at least, that she's involved as a kind of mama bear for her models, protecting them and grooming them and helping them to negotiate a very changed landscape in both the fashion industry and the modeling industry. What do you mean, Michael, by changed landscape? How are things different now fundamentally than from when Kate got started? Well, it used to be that models modeled. They walked the runway, they posed for pictures. Occasionally, they went to visit people like Jeffrey Epstein, but mostly they were traditional fashion models. Nowadays, they're social media stars. They're endorsing products. Some of them are actually making products. Kate has also just in the last few months launched a beauty and wellness line called something like Cosmos or Cosmos. I guess it must be Cosmos. And like her, young people aspire to be like her. They don't just want to walk on the runway and pose for pictures. They want to become hyphenates, multi-threats. So she has a singer, Rita Ora. She has a skater boy. She's got a lot of different kinds of people with their fingers in lots of different pies on the books of her agency. She's assembled the sort of like Avengers 
DC Comics version of the Lucky Sperm Club, where she's even got, I think, as you note in your story, doesn't she even have Keith Richards' granddaughter as a client as well? She does indeed. She's got a bunch of kids who are sort of younger, more modern versions of Kate herself. She's got Mick Jones's daughter, Mick Jones, the Clash guitar player. She's got her first client was a girl named Elfie Rygate, who's 22 years old and who was a bridesmaid at Kate Moss's marriage to the Kills guitarist Jamie Hintz. Ella Richards is the granddaughter of Keith Richards and I think the child of Marlon Richards and Lucy de la Falaise. They were kind of little downtown social stars in the mid-90s. She's also got Stella Maxwell, who was formerly a Victoria's Secrets model. There's a boy named Jordan Barrett, who was discovered by IMG. And the interesting thing with him is he was briefly married to the son of John Casablancas, who had founded Elite Models and really was the first person to modelize the modeling world. Kate and her daughter were at their wedding. Unfortunately, they then broke up. But she isn't just selling celebrity spawn, as I call all them in the piece. Lucky Sperm Club is a good phrase, too. She's got some serious models, and they've got some serious clients. They work with Balmain, with Versace, with Miu Miu, with Saint Laurent, with Burberry, with Vuitton. So they're operating as a little tiny guerrilla force at the very, very top of the industry. Michael, part of Kate Moss's enduring allure has been related in some part to her mystery. She famously doesn't give many interviews. There's still a lot that we don't know about her. She cultivates this aura of unknowability. How does that square with this oversharing social media landscape that models now find themselves in when so many of them are getting booked based on the number of followers and how much of themselves they're willing to reveal to the public? Well, Kate is both old school in that she came up in the early 90s when models were just models. And she was very, very young. She was when I met her, quite insecure. I mean, she was not chatty. She wasn't talkative. She was demure almost. But then on the other hand, she also had this insane celebrity life where she would get photographed chopping lines of cocaine and dating rock stars and running around to parties and falling down on the steps as she left them. So despite her natural reticence, which was, by the way, really charming, she also had this very outgoing personality that at that point wasn't captured by Instagram or other social media, but was tablets. So she got burned, I think, and she came to understand that celebrity is a double-edged sword. And she cultivated a mystique that allowed her to retain an envelope of privacy within the larger ecosystem in which she's under constant scrutiny. And I would submit that she's managed it very well, that despite what some people think of as scandal after scandal after scandal, she's bounced back. The worst one was in about 2005 when she was photographed in a recording studio snorting blow and she lost a bunch of clients. She went into rehab, she apologized, and within a year she was back with her own clothing line at Topshop. That's really a case study in good celebrity management. You mentioned that she wants to be kind of a mama bear here. Strikes me, when you're 18, 19 years old and you're recruited by the NBA as a top draft pick, they kind of have this weekend-long 
where they, they take these teenage boys who are can basically joining a league of men, and they sort of walk them through the do's and don'ts and how to sort of like cope with this sudden influx of fame and money. She certainly has a lot of wisdom this year. I'm just wondering, do you think that there's some lectures there or classes where she's imparting any of this wisdom of how to navigate this world? I love the notion of Kate's school. <laughs> Let's have Kate sitting there at the desk explaining what to do when Mick Jagger offers you a Coke spoon. Um, it's like, in my day, there were no cameras around, so it was much easier to chop the cocaine. Now it's a little more complicated. Somehow, I doubt that it's formalized in that way. I quote Kate in the piece. She's only given one interview ever about this agency. And in typical Kate fashion, she said a lot by saying very little. And her notion of how to be a modeling agent was that she didn't want the girls to feel insecure. And that's a case of everything old is new again. In the past, other models, Dorian Lee, most famously, Wilhelmina Cooper, also ended their active modeling careers by going into the modeling business. Some notably unsuccessful like Lee, some notably successful like Wilhelmina, who's long gone, but her agency still exists and thrives. And when I wrote my book in 1995 called Model, part of what the underlying theme was that there was an assumption that these agencies were functioning in loco parentis as parents to the 15, 16, 17, up to 20 something year old kids who were their clients. And to an extent that was true. It was more true in female run agencies and it was more true in female model run agencies. And so that puts Kate in the interesting position of being among the more responsible. I mean, it's ironic that here you have Kate Moss as a responsible model agent, as opposed to some of the irresponsible ones who've been so much in the press in the last few years for providing girls to Jeffrey Epstein and raping girls and drugging girls. Somehow, I don't think Kate would be doing that. If anything, she would be counseling her models on how to avoid that kind of stuff. Do you think that Kate Moss's party girl days are gone for good? Or has she made a complete transformation into a business impresario? Being a little bit of a bad girl is still part of her image. The interesting thing now is that instead of being a child herself, she's the mother of a model who is booked by her agency. And she's the kind of surrogate mother for the dozen or so models who are also on her roster. And as we've all seen in celebrity culture, it's entirely possible to maintain the image of being a bit risque while also becoming responsible as a parent and responsible as a business person. And I think Kate has proven her ability to do those things. Well, Michael Gross, thank you so much, not only for joining us, but for your fabulous story on the Kate Moss Agency in this week's issue of Airmail. It's my pleasure. And I'm delighted to be in this week's issue of Airmail. Hooray. Thanks again, Michael. More soon. Thank you, Michael. Okay, Michael, hypothetically, if you were a male model, which maybe you should be, would you sign with the Kate Moss agency or would you go for someone more established? Oh, I'd go with Kate Moss. Yeah, me too. Why not? And, and I'd, I'd bring my best blue steel and it would be over. Game over. All right. Well, Michael, we've solved most of the problems of the universe this week. But before we go off into the weekend, please tell me something to recommend. Okay, I've got two. As you know, we recently published our first special issue devoted to downtown New York. And this week, I have a one-two cultural punch for those of you in New York, which continues on the downtown theme. First... 
If you haven't made it to the Whitney Museum yet to see their new show on Edward Hopper, don't miss it. What's great about this exhibit is that the theme is Hopper's New York, the village in lower Manhattan as captured on his canvases. There's more than a few works here that I've never seen, as well as a few of my favorites, the best of which have that noir film still quality. And after you see that show, I highly recommend you take in a great new restaurant, Koloman. It's K-O-L-O-M-A-N. It's run by Marcus Glocker, who guided his previous restaurant, Batard, to being best new restaurant in America by the James Beard Foundation. And his latest effort, based in the Ace Hotel here in New York City, doesn't disappoint. It's a delicious combination of classic Austrian dishes, which are given a touch of French flair, and it's the perfect place to hole up on a cold winter afternoon or night and imagine you're being transported to the best cafe in Vienna. Glocker delivers a menu that's cooked with care, but you also want want to dig into it. It's got roasted duck breast, chicken for two, and schnitzel. And spatzel, that was so good, I ordered an extra side. There's also Viennese sweets, but my favorite was a knockout apple strudel. And if you're too busy to go for dinner, stop by for breakfast. You won't be disappointed either, because how can you be? After all, the Viennese invented the coffee house. It's Coloman, and it's at 16 West 29th Street. And you, Ashley, what do you got for me? I mean, is it better than Cafe Sabarsky? It's just different than Cafe Sabarsky. That's a good question. Next time you're back, you and I will have a strudel crawl. We'll go to Cafe Sabarsky. We'll go to Valze. We'll go to Coloman. And we'll just have strudel and coffee and decide which one's the best. How's that? See, this is why we're friends. I love it. Okay, I have two things to recommend. The first is those who are coming to London for the holidays, which I hope is all of you, you have to go to the Royal Academy of Arts. There's an incredible new exhibition there called Making Modernism. It's the first major UK exhibition that's devoted to four women artists who were working in Germany in the early 1900s. It was Paula Modersen-Becker, Kathy Kollwitz, Gabrielle Munther, and Marianne Werefkin. And these are incredible artists. I had not seen much of their work before. I was really moved by a lot of the paintings. I thought it was incredibly well curated and put together. So if you have an hour or two to spare, there are about 65 works. Many of them have never been shown in the UK before. And it's Making Modernism at the Royal Academy of Arts here in London. And it's on through February 12th of 2023. My other recommendation is a film called The Swimmers. I went and saw the, a screening of this here in London, thanks to my friend Emily Fitzroy, who ruined my eye makeup for the day. Biographical drama. It was directed by Sally el and this premiered at Toronto and it got a lot of buzz at the Toronto Film Festival and it just came out last week on Netflix so you can watch it there and it is the story of two teenage refugees Yusra and Sara Mardini they fled Syria and managed to end up in Germany and Yusra Mardini is well known all over the world because she ended up swimming as a member of the refugee Olympic athletes team at the 2016 Summer Olympics in Rio she has an amazing story and this is a really well done movie for a lot of reasons it's got plenty of plot and drama, but it also gives a lot of important insight into the experiences that many of these refugees have had and how it has shaped them. It's a wonderful film. It's called The Swimmers, and you can watch it on Netflix. I'm going to do that. You better. I'm going to put that ahead of the Harry and Meghan documentary because I think it's a little more substantive and important. On that note, we wish you all a wonderful weekend. Michael, my dear, will you please read us out? We'd like to give very special thanks to our sponsor for this episode, David Yerman. Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news 
which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting, but in the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. Most of all, thank you again for joining us.